Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Blog Talk Radio. Tonight, we'll go back in time to seasons past, when 22 men graced the rugged fields of yesterday, fighting for one more first down, one more yard gain, one final score, which would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron. Tonight, we'll explore the world of gridiron greats. Welcome to Gridiron Greats Football History and its memorabilia on the Gridiron Greats Publishing and Broadcasting Network in conjunction with Swick Enterprises. And we're live from the Wallingford, Connecticut home of Gridiron Greats Magazine. I'm Bob Swick, publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America which focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We'll cover 150-plus years of football history and memorabilia, and you can find us on the web app. GridironGreatsMagazine.com. It is at this time I'd like to introduce my co-host, the senior contributing writer to Gridiron Greats Magazine, a football <laughs> memorabilia historian specializing in pre-World War II items, in particular Red Grange, and also Seattle Seahawk items, in particular Steve Larger. He hails from Portland, Oregon. Mr. Joe Squires. Joe! Welcome back and welcome to the show tonight. Uh, your voice is like music to my ears, Bob. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's so good to be back. I wanted to say thanks to Jeff Payne for uh, splitting duties with me while I was handling, you know, business and personal. And uh, thanks for keeping the captain in line while I was gone. I loved the shows you guys did. Uh, they, they were, it, yeah, they were really good shows. Uh, great topics. Jeff obviously knows. A lot more about football than I do, so uh, just thank you very much for for uh, for keeping the seat warm, Jeff. I do appreciate Jeff filling in, and as I tell everyone, everyone has their own niche, their own specialty in football history and memorabilia. And uh, Joe, by far and wide, you have a lot of knowledge in a lot of different areas in football, especially Grange and your uh, your Seahawks there. So don't ever underestimate any knowledge that we have in this hobby because we all share it and we all try to learn more and grow with it at the same time. And uh, before we get, before we get on topic here uh, with what you and I are going to talk about, I want to interject the issue of now the XFL is gone. And uh, I picked up a little more information on it over the past 24 hours from, uh, uh, a very reliable source. Um, they did declare bankruptcy, which I was kind of surprised at. But I think the reason why they did it was basically to protect themselves because they had a lot of contractual agreements with the stadiums, so on and so forth, and with the advertisers at the same time. So I think that was probably the only way out that they could see from the uh, closure of the league 
only five games in. And the other big issue, which I think is kind of avoided right now, um, is that they will have rescheduling conflicts down the road if they say they want to try to play in June or whatever. Because I know a couple of the stadiums uh, are being used by other uh, venues for sports and concerts and the like and so on and so forth. So I got a feeling um, it, it was just too much to go wrong all at once. And uh, it's a shame because I, I kind of liked it. I thought it was an interesting game to watch or something different. Totally. Uh, just as the Alliance of Football was last season, last spring, that didn't make it. Uh, this was the same same deal, only with a little more innovation and a little more uh, uniqueness to it at the same time. I watched a couple games. I liked what I saw. I mean, uh, I, I I love going to, you know, Portland, Oregon here has an arena football team, or they did. Uh, and I like going to see that. I mean, it's uh, athletes. I mean, the, the difference between, you know, college and pro is, is so noticeable, you know, when you, when you go to both games. Oh, right. It's just yeah. the timing yeah. is so much better. And, and you can see it in the XF, XFL. You can see it in arena football. It is a half a step behind NFL, but, but still, you know, it, it's professional. It, it was, it was pretty fun to watch. Exactly. And I'll tell you, you know, you, you mentioned arena football, indoor football. I still like indoor football. Uh, I just think it's kind of cool to watch. I think it's unique. Uh, again, guys are just hoping somehow they're noticed or they excel to the point that somebody yeah. in the NFL or the CFL wants to pick them up. And, and you know, you, you know, you look at Kurt Warner, that's the, the classic story. You know, you know, the, the man was incredible in the arena, in the arena game and he found success in the NFL at the same time. So it's a, it's a great yeah. story. And, and again, you know, indoor football now is very uh, different than it used to be. If it, I don't even know if it's going to operate this year. I, I got a feeling it may or may not. And they're very splintered as far as the leagues are concerned because the arena football league, uh, I don't believe is in existence anymore. And uh, interesting to no. note on uh, Gridiron Greats, uh, we have a a writer who contributes on occasion, Zach Tubb, who uh, was a very well-known uh, indoor football player. And uh, he's followed, and, and he's, I've had several conversations with him about the, the indoor game, and, and uh, he brought a very good insight to it over over the, uh, the his career and also with uh, seeing what happened to the league itself. But like anything, if you don't have fans, you don't have sponsors, you don't have ads, you're not going to survive. I mean, it's yep. as simple as that, you know. Unfortunately, that's, yeah, that's the reality of our of our yep. economy. So yep. I don't know anyone who's ever seen an arena football game on TV. It's, so there's one third of your revenue plus, you know, and, and, right, uh, right. you know, in broadcasting and another third of your revenue in, uh, in advertising. So it's, uh, yeah, you're, you're relying on tickets and concessions in arena. Right. And it's a, you know, it's a tough market. I know we had we had a team here in uh, Connecticut for a very short period of time. I got to see one game. Yeah, you know, it's fun to me. I mean, it was a cheap, cheap night out and had some fun seeing the game. You know, this saw some, you know, relatively good plays. Obviously, like you said, you know, they're, they are definitely a half to full step behind a regular professional team. But, you know, it's still still interesting to see and interesting to watch at the same time. But uh, get, getting back on script here, there are a couple major auctions going on right now, uh, which uh, yeah. there's some very, very interesting – unopened items being offered in both the REA auction and also in a heritage auction that's going on. And, um, yeah, Joe, why don't you lead off? You sent me some information and I was looking at it before the show on the heritage, uh, items. And I'm going to switch back here on them. Oh man, fever. I mean, with, you know, Leland's ending, obviously, you know, uh, You know, love of the, love of the game, uh, sponsor Good on Greats just ended uh, earlier. I think on Saturday, and you've got REA coming up and uh, Heritage uh, Heritage auctions so much stuff off. It seems like they have something firing off once a week, whether it's books or whatever. But in uh, tw- and in about uh, 26 days, an auction coming up with a tremendous amount of unopened. 
And uh, I got to say, Bob, one of the, my favorite and most memorable shows we've ever done is uh, the show. We had two back-to-back shows. We brought on some, uh, some unopened wax experts. And it was eye-opening. Yep. It was scary. Yep. But, uh, but definitely one of the most memorable shows we've done. Uh, so I, I, have a, I have a small amount of unopened still in my collection. Uh, nothing serious. But whenever I see an auction like this, you know, getting ready to fire off, it, it makes me think about dipping my pool or my toe back into the pool. But I, I, I know there's so much tainted unopened, it's scary. But uh, coming up, you know, coming up in Heritage, like I said, in, in, uh, in about three weeks, uh, you know, starts starts off with 2,000, uh, you know, with uh, 2,000 playoff contender football. That's the uh, the Tom Brady one. Right, you know, or the you know the Tom Brady rookie card, and that goes for six figures, uh, and that box is at fifty two hundred. There's a a fifty four Bowman one, uh, you know, penny pack. I didn't realize there's a hundred and twenty open packs in a box for penny pack. That's pretty interesting. Uh, first yeah. series uh, sixty one Fleer. Uh, first series in sixty one Fleer is the rarest. It's the hardest. It's the uh, the NFL cards versus the uh, you know the AFL cards AFL. in the second series. Yep. Uh, hey, excuse me. Uh, uh, and then next up, 62 tops. Uh, these are all BBC, you know, certified shrink wrapped uh, with their modern, you know, logoed shrink wrap. Fifty or twenty-four thousand dollars for 24 packs and a and a wax packs display box. A thousand a pack for 62 tops football. Pretty incredible. Uh, it is. You it roll is. on down. We got some. Some uh, some some Bob Swick first year as a young mustachioed child opening up sixty five Philly uh, twenty four <laughs> pack that'd be a good good birthday gift for you Bob just to get you get you a, a, a wax packs with twenty four unopened packs just set it up and like you know it'd be just take take you back to your childhood walking take, in and plunk a plunk a nine down I could take one pack a one pack a year each birthday figuring if I could make it to my mid eighties I I could open that whole box. <laughs> One pack a year, well, and I'd be all set. Yeah, I, I I'll, noticed. I'll pass right the hat on. Uh, pass the hat on VFC. That that uh, <laughs> box is at nine thousand right now. Uh, maybe we can get a couple people to chip in for for the captain's fun. Uh, Sixty-eight tops. Six. Uh, Seventy tops. Seventy-two tops. Seventy-five tops. Twenty-six hundred seventy-six tops. Just incredible. And it goes all the way yeah. down to the the last yeah. one of consequence, uh, seventy six tops, you know, with thirty six wax packs, you know, Walter Payton's rookie card at sixty five hundred, and there's a lot of uh, you know there's a lot of graded wax packs in there too. Just man, and you wonder if this all came from one collector who's been collecting this stuff over the years because this is easily going to be you know two hundred thousand dollars worth of unopened wax. It's uh, oh, vintage yeah. football. Yeah. That's firing off. Yeah, by 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 uh, all means. And in, in the REA auction, uh, we're talking about yep. grading, and I got I got the REA up right now on my screen, and I'm trying to find it. Um, he had, and Brian Dwyer, who was a guest on our show, he's got a uh, 2,000 yeah. playoff contenders, 8,500 right now. Uh, with 11 bids, they still have time running on that. And there's also now a um, – I'm trying to find it. Uh, there was another notable wax box, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting to see uh, coming up. Oh, yeah, they had this, a lot this of is interesting. ones, I noticed. Inter- interesting to me, 1979 – an open wax yep. box and an, an open cello box. Now, to me, the 79 set really doesn't get a lot of favor in the hobby oh. for whatever reason. But uh, very set. strong, very strong prices for that. But the other thing, thinking of you, uh, some interesting uncut sheets, including a 71 top yeah. football game proof sheet, uh, which is to me very un, unpriced right well, now. You know, a couple hundred bucks on. You're not supposed so. to out. You're not supposed to out auctions, especially with uncut sheet stuff that I'm interested in. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I you know I think I think just given market conditions and given the economy right now, you know it'd be interesting to see where a lot of this stuff ends up 
going. So I think it's it's going to be interesting to see. And then the other one, but I think you have this already, the 61 Fleer second series. There's an uncut oh, sheet in there. In our I've area. been, uh, uh, with COVID-19 locking us down, I've been going through a lot of my uncut sheets. I realized I have probably a dozen of each of the four series from 81 football, uh, you know, 81 tops. I probably yeah. have 10 second series 61 Fleer uncut sheets. Uh, yeah, to the point where I I know which row that you know so they they obviously cut them differently because you know right, the top row right. is different. There's about three different top rows for the sheets. It's pretty interesting. Oh, man, that's, I've got that's, way too many uncut amazing. sheets, Bob. They are hard to handle. Well, they're difficult. They're difficult to store unless you got you know. And I know how you store them, and you got you got a pretty good setup there. But at the same time, I mean, yeah. they take up room, and you got you got to figure out where to. You know where to where to keep them. You got to have proper storage and or good draw draws or good framing uh, if you're going to display any of them at the same time. I remember years ago, and I know I've, I've mentioned this before. I was at a card show. This was probably in the late '80s, and a dealer had these. Uh, there were six card and nine card strips of 1960 Fleer football, and I ended yeah. up buying from them. And, um, you know, to me, they, they look like printer scrap more than anything else. And uh, I kept yeah. them for a long time, and then I started, started selling them. Uh, actually, probably over the last 10 years, I, I got rid of them. And uh, they were interesting display piece at the, same, at the same time, interesting conversation piece. But, again, to me, they were more printer scrap than anything else. You know what I mean? So, uh, but these are the real sheets. Yeah. So, and what you have are the real sheets. They're, they're the actual pieces that we're looking at with regards to you know, how these cards were actually printed and where they were cut, so on and so forth. Fascinating history of gives you so, football cards. It gives, gives you so much insight into a set. Uh, and I just, I keep referring to that, uh, you know, that article I did for Gridiron several years ago on the 57 Tops football and the Zeke Bratkowski card. And the minute you see the sheet, the uncut sheet, and you see Zeke in the number one top left position on the card on the sheet you realize why Zeke Bratkowski is such a hard card in the 57th offset right. you know but I mean it's no, and again it, it puts everything in perspective as a, as a collector you know the, this is why certain cards are, are more difficult than others and again the, the cutting process itself has, it has evolved so dramatically over the years to the to the extent today it's basically laser cut uh, from the sheets yeah. and uh, the, the cutting machines and printing today are, are dramatically different than they were 40, 50 years ago. So it's a, it's a completely different uh, process of, of printing, so on and so forth. So it's uh, it's it's amazing to see and amazing to see the history of it. And again, the one thing I I was uh, going through some of my cards. I was putting a bunch of, of uh, duplicates I had in numerical order. And I was going through my 1973 Tops football, and I probably got about a good, I would say, seven, 800 extras, duplicates of them. I can't believe how many miscuts I have that I found. That I remember years ago, I used to take miscuts, and I used to throw them out because I didn't like them. But I didn't realize I had saved all these over the years. And uh, it's kind of interesting to see, you know, the, the process they used to cut them. And how bad, or or, or how inf- how um, I, I don't know what a good word is, how missed a lot of the quality control was seeing those cards enter packs. You know what I mean, or vending boxes. So uh, it's kind of interesting to see uh, a miscut card, and they're more prevalent mm-hmm. basically in the six, '60s and '70s. Obviously, not so much in the '80s or and or the '90s. So uh, very interesting to to look at and view. We're back I love it, and right I've here. said it. I've said it a hundred times. No one's no one's going to reseal, trim, re, recolor, or you know, or doctor an uncut sheet. I mean, it's uh, they're they're not making anymore. I, I can't say the right. same same thing for a lot of a lot of other collectibles. So I mean, I've I've really settled into my my uncut sheet you know collection, and I you know we moved into our new office about a year ago, so now I have. You know, probably a dozen uncut sheets that adorn my walls uh, from my, you know, 48 leaf to 57. I just, I, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, I mean, they're they're beautiful to look at. I mean, you're you're really seeing the history of football cards when you're looking at an uncut sheet like that. It's a 
it's truly amazing, to say the least. All right, at this time, our guest is ready, and I'd like to introduce him to our audience. I'd like to welcome our special guest. He's a former sports writer, a member of the Professional Football Researchers Association, and he's author of three different football books. The NFL in the 1970s, Pro Football's Most Important Decade. His second book, The Year the Packers Came Back, Green Bay's 1972 Resurgence. And his latest book, which is going to be reviewed in the forthcoming upcoming issue of Gridiron Greats magazine, which will be out hopefully in the next week or so. America's trailblazing middle linebacker, the story of NFL Hall of Famer, Lily Lanier. He hails from Oak Ridge, Tennessee. I'd like to welcome to our show this evening, Mr. Joe Zagorski. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, hey, Bob and Joe, how's it going? We're good. Excellent. Okay. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks. I'm glad to be on. I I don't I don't hail from Oak Ridge, but that's where I'm living at now. <laughs> I'll say. Okay, let me rephrase that. He lives in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Welcome <laughs> to the show. I don't, I, you're yeah. from Pennsylvania, right? Yes, I am. Originally from Pennsylvania. Yeah, okay. All right. All right. I should have started with that, but I I just go by what the bios tell me, and that's it. All right. Let's uh, lead off. <laughs> Joe, how did you get started writing about football? How did I get started? Well, I I guess it started from just as a kid falling in love with the sport in 1971 and watching it uh, religiously every Sunday afternoon and every Monday night. Um, Of course, I was only in the third grade in 1971. And if, if you had parents like mine, you were lucky to get to stay up long enough to hear the see the end of halftime highlights on Monday night football. <laughs> and, you know, because like they had this unusual notion that they wanted you, it was a school night. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah. um, I, I just, you know, when you have a bunch of friends that love football and you're a kid, you just, you know, it, it becomes a part of you. And so, yeah, I just, I just just grew up loving it, and, you know, by the time I was in high school, I was writing for the school paper, and I thought, you know, it was something that I enjoyed doing because I, I, by that time I enjoyed a lot of different sports. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I always knew in the back of my mind I probably won't be able to make a real good living at this because there's only so many, you know, Ray Diddingers out there, you know, <laughs> and uh, there's – it's you really have to be – phenomenal to to reach that level and so uh but i did it for a couple of you know small town newspapers for really a total of six years and um made a lot of friends and still in touch with a lot of these folks that i you know worked with at that time and got a chance to cover the philadelphia eagles a few times and that was great and um you know eat the press off press box food you know so but um (laughs) I, I, you know, I like to eat. It's like my second favorite thing, but, uh, but, but I, you know, I just, it, it never left me that, that love of football never left me and I'm 57 now. And, you know, I enjoy it just as much as I did when I was a kid. Now I heard you guys talking about the, the XFL earlier and I enjoyed watching that. Um, friend of mine who was an assistant coach for the Houston uh, Roughnecks this spring, uh, Bill Bradley, uh, he, you know, he's in his seventies now and he's actually the subject of my fourth book, which will be, you know, be, it'll be published sometime in another couple of years, I hope. But, uh, you know, I just, uh, I, I enjoyed all kinds of football really. Um, and since I was a kid, so hope that answers your question. (laughs) Absolutely. You're in good company, Joe. You're talking to two guys who grew up sitting around watching football, too. So, <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, yeah, just, I, you know, but but you know, you guys know as well as I do that when we were young, you didn't have cable television in those days. You had, right. we had seven, cha- we had seven channels in Pennsylvania and three of them came in okay. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know that well. I know that well. You know, uh, just to back up a bit and, and off of um, off script a bit also, it's very difficult 
And, you know, with the contraction in media, as far as print media is concerned, for any type of sports writer to really survive. So a lot of them are publishing their own blogs, their own columns, their own websites, so on and so forth. So it's a difficult way to make a living. And I, I know I had a good friend of mine I went to college with. One of my degrees that I have was in journalism. And he basically just covered high school sports his entire career. Now, now it's tough because there's no high, sport, high school sports going on. So basically he's just trying to do um, uh, review col- I mean, columns and stories about games from years gone by, you know, the team championships locally, so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a tough situation. So I see a lot of it is. sports writers it, it, sports writers actually writing books now more than anything else. And, you know, uh, there's there's only a few Peter Kings out there, and even Sports Illustrated, yep. uh, yep. you know, yep. I, I, I don't know if we're going to see the end of that uh, um, publication anytime soon, but it, it may happen with the computer age that we're living in right now. So, yeah. And unfortunately, I'm a print guy. You know, I still got to read the daily paper, which is basically, you know, <laughs> fading rapidly, especially the local paper. And I, I feel bad because, you know, my my local paper is now 18, 20 pages an issue, uh, especially yeah. now with with basically no news going on. And uh, it's a, it's no, a, it's I, a I bad think within within another generation, it may it may be gone altogether because there's yeah. so many yeah. people getting their news by by way of computer these days. So. Yeah, yep, totally agree. Hey, Joe, I wanted to ask you about your uh, your one of your previous books, the NFL in the '70s, Pro Football's Most Important Decade. And my uh, mm-hmm. my question yeah. is, uh, there's a, a a young receiver out of Seattle named Steve Largent. What impact do you think he had on the uh, NFL in the '70s? You know what? He was um, he he came into the league at the exact right time because. He was, of course, he was an, uh, an original Seahawk. 1976 was their first year. Um, yep. Got his feet wet, you know, and he got a chance to, you know, go up against defenses that were still playing bump and run defenses at that time. And, uh, and, and we're also, you know, being able to chuck him after five yards. Well, a couple of years later in 78, the rules changed. And the passing game just opens up for everybody. And then he really got to show his skills. He's in the Hall of Fame now for a reason. Uh, he had great hands even before the rule changes. And it just showcased how great he was once those rule changes came. Uh, if you if you watch the films, he, he jukes a lot of people out and he gets open. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's something else. That, that is exactly the right answer, Joe. Thank you. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, I've, never, I'll, I've, ne- I've never met him, Grant. I, I've <laughs> never met him. Never had the, the privilege of, of meeting him or even interviewing him. But uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of talk today about guys getting in the Hall of Fame that probably shouldn't be. Well, that they're yeah, not talking yeah. about Steve Argent. Ah. Bob, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to get that sound bite right there as my ringtone. They're not talking about Steve Barr. I like that. Well said, Joe. No, you're going back going back to your book and 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 the serious question. I'm a, I've, I I I grew up watching Seahawk football and uh, you know Steve Larger was my was my childhood hero. So other than a restraining order, I've uh, I'd, I'd like to meet him again one of these days. Um, well, but you know what? He had the exact right quarterback throwing to him too. Uh, Jim Zorn was was able to get was able to you know with that sprint option that they had running uh, he he was able to get plenty of free time in that in that uh, pocket where he could find guys like Largent and uh, ah. you know I, I thought I thought Zorn was way ahead of his time I, I did except when he became the head coach of the Redskins well. <laughs> well well, you know what? Coaching's different. Coaching's different than yeah, totally. you know. Okay. Yeah, you got you got you got lucky. There, there was a game of musical chairs that went on there in the Redskins. He went from a quarterback coach. Somebody got fired. He became offensive coordinator. Somebody got fired, and he became he became head coach. He's the Gerald Ford of head coaches. You know, just happened I, I, to be in the right place at the right time. 
I don't, I don't know who said this. I can't remember, but I remember that when the great Baltimore Colt wide receiver Raymond Berry became head coach of, I guess it was New England, and New England That's was right, having yeah. a tough. New England was having a tough year, and somebody asked somebody else why why isn't uh, Barry that good? And uh, somebody said, well, he's coaching them. He's not catching them anymore. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, obviously you've mentioned a few things. You were in third grade in 1971. Uh, so, I mean, you know, other than living in it, you know, the, the topic of the 70s, why write a book about an entire decade of football like that? Well, you know, it didn't. It, it was kind of like a moment in time where I, when I was growing up, I, I didn't have really any responsibility. I had fun. I, you know, enjoyed the time. Um, I started going to high school in the fall of 77. And so, you know, it was just a memorable time for me where I didn't have to pay bills and things like that. And I also remembered that the game – it just seemed like it was a it was a fun game back at that time, and it was enjoyable. And there's the memories that I had from it. And then I started looking. You know, I didn't write about the '70s in the NFL until many years afterwards. But I started doing kind of like a quasi comparison of what could I remember from the decades before the '70s and the decades after, and how could I compare the two, all the all those. To, to the 70s. And to me, there wasn't any comparison. I mean, even different types of household names that we know of today, I mean, that we knew of back then, we still know today. I mean, you're still able to uh, watch Joe Namath uh, selling uh, stuff on, uh, you know, different things on commercials today. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but all these years later, the Pro Football Hall of Fame has more articles written about Joe Namath than any other pro football player, including guys mm-hmm. like Tom Brady and uh, Joe Montana. You know, it, it's incredible. And he, his last year was 77. So, um, yeah. and, and then of course the great events, the immaculate reception, uh, the hail yep. Mary pass, the Holy roller, uh, you know, the sea of hands game. It, I could go on and on. Um, so I just didn't think that there was anything yeah. that the eighties or the nineties could compare with all those things. So yep. I, I, I finally the, decided the games, the games that are synonymous in today's football, you know, the butt fumble and the tuck rule. So yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, yeah. and you know what? I, I think that if you walked, you know, went out into the street and asked somebody, do you know of name for me? 10 football players that played last year, just an average person. And now name for me 10 football players that played in the seventies, bet you that they're able to do the latter before they can do the former. That's a very good point. That's very true. Very That's good very, point. very true. And, 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 and again, well, what, you know, you've got Bradshaw. Yeah, you've got Bradshaw on um, Sunday afternoons when there is football, when there's not coronavirus. And, you know, um, these are guys that probably, I mean, well, I, John Madden lasted a very long time after, I mean, he, the highest winning percentage of any pro coach ever. He's known today for broadcasting, but he was a great coach. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, yeah. it's it, it was the seventies. Just it, there was just so much that I wanted to. Plus, in the nineteenth, well, at, when I was writing that book, there were a couple of books out there that were written about the seventies, but they were more feature books. They they didn't really they weren't really comprehensive. And I wanted to write a year by year comprehensive book that would have as much factual information in it as possible. And um, I decided to do that, and fortunately, I found a publisher who was willing to publish it. <laughs> so. Yeah, and you're, you're right because you did. I did enjoy, and I'm pretty sure I put in my review for that book that I enjoyed the year by year look 
which wasn't done in other books on the 1970s. You know, and again, when anybody writes a book, they say, well, I'm going to write a book. Okay, well, what are you writing a book about? You know, what are you focusing on? So on and so forth. And you, you hit on the key word, comprehensive. There, there wasn't really any comprehensive view that we had of that time frame. We had a lot of different information said, everywhere, but we didn't have that, you know, year-by-year year look from 70 up to 79. So I sent, a, very good. I sent a copy – I sent a copy of it to the Pro Football Hall of Fame president, Mr. David Baker, and he yeah. sent me a letter back. He sent me a letter back saying, "Thanks so much. I really uh, like the book. When is your uh, comprehensive look of the '80s and the '90s coming out?" I bust out laughing. You're going to have a long wait, Mr. Baker. <laughs> um, but let, let somebody else tackle that one. No pun intended. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I I I'd like to talk a little bit about my favorite book that you wrote, and it, it's no surprise to anybody. You, you wrote the book the year the Packers came back, Green Bay's 1972 resurgence, a unique year in Packer history, uh, a unique coach, a unique team. Uh, I was never, never, ever a big fan of uh, Dan Devine for a variety of reasons. But what you wrote about in that book, to me, just made that made that season come alive and really gave a lot of different insight to that particular team for the Packers and really was, was almost, uh, it was definitely a false hope for Packer fan, <clears throat> Packer fans trying to, get out of the doldrums of only a few seasons off not being in the big game, not, not winning, so on and so forth. And and there was a logical letdown after Lombardi left. Yeah, how do you replace a Lombardi? Well, you really didn't replace Lombardi until how many years later when you actually had the right. coaching in there, and so on and so forth. So give me some background or give our audience some background on, on this, why you wrote the book, so on and so forth. Well, um, I, first, first of all, it was this, the same era, of course, the 70s, that I was really interested in writing in. And then the more research I did on it, I realized, you know, that was a winnable game, that playoff game, to the Redskins. They lost 16-3. to And yep. I, knew that they, I knew that they had – the Packers had only won four games the previous year in 1971. So I thought, thought about it. How does a team go from four – what is it? Four, eight, and two, or something like that. I think that's what they were. Yeah. To ten and four overnight, in an era where throwing the ball isn't common, uh, it's more of a running game back at that time. Your your starting quarterback is Scott Hunter, definitely not going to be one of those guys who are going to go to the Hall of Fame. Um, maybe as a visitor, but not as a as a you know. <laughs> um, and and then um, you you didn't have any. You didn't have any really good good wide receivers for him to throw to. Their best offensive guard um, gets injured early in the year when the head coach yep. decides to turn him into a defensive tackle overnight, right before the start yep. of the season. Yep. Uh, and, and and they still won their division against the Minnesota Vikings, a very good team in the early 70s still. Uh, so the Packers had a running game. Um Brockington and in, in, in 1971, and then McC- uh, um, MacArthur Lane comes in in 72. But everybody knows they're going to run the ball. Well, shouldn't they be able to stop them if they know they're going to run the ball? Well, ten times they couldn't. They won ten games, and uh, they played really good competition. They beat the defending world champion Cowboys. They beat another playoff team, the 49ers. They beat another playoff team at that time, the Cleveland Browns. So they, they, they did not have a soft schedule. Now, granted, you know, at that time, the Detroit Lions, a divisional rival, were still a good team. So yep. they, they yep. had a tough schedule, and they still won. But I, I started to wonder, well, why did they lose to the Redskins? And I'm thinking, you know, the Redskins, they weren't, they weren't really uh, great at that time. I mean, they they had a lot of over-aged players. Uh, so I started to talk to people, 
and different Packer fans. And then I started to interview certain players and talk about an eye opener. When I, when I got, well, the, the first actual player that I interviewed for the book um, was, was Dave Robinson. I, I interviewed other Packer players and talked to them a little bit, but I sat down with Dave Robinson for about two hours and it was like, oh, my God, how in the world did Dan Devine become a head pro football coach? Yeah. I, just, yeah. I just couldn't yeah. figure it out. And and he I, – I didn't even I, – I couldn't even write everything that Dave said because he asked me not to get, print certain stuff. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, I, but he did tell me one story that was kind of unique. You, you remember the movie Rudy with uh, the Notre yeah. Dame? Okay, well – Dan Devine at that time had migrated on to being a head coach at Notre Dame. And when that movie came out, Devine's uh, relatives, uh, I think by that time Devine may have passed, I'm not sure, but the relatives threatened to sue the Walt Disney Company uh, because the movie apparently, according to them, painted Dan in in a bad light. And the, the producers told the uh, the family members, look, we're going with what we got. If you want to sue us, you can. But if you want to sue us, we'll put in all the stuff that we didn't keep in. And yeah, they dropped the yeah. suit overnight. So you can't even imagine. Yeah. You, you can't imagine how, how poor of a coach this guy was and why why he was – I mean, now granted, he had he was successful at Missouri before he got to Green Bay but they just made the wrong choice. And then I started talking to other players. I started, I talked to Brockington. I, I talked to Scott Hunter and I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is, there's a story here. Even the, the, the um, PR director at that time, Chuck Lane told me, you know, you, you really, um, this is a story that needs to be written. And I said, okay. <laughs> so, so I started writing it and, uh, I sent it to the publisher, and they said, well, your first book, The 70s and the NFL, did so well, we'll give you a chance with this one. <laughs> so they kind wow. of, I kind of, you know, it may not have ever seen the light of day were it not for the initial 70s book. And Mike Holmgren, who wrote the foreword to it, um, I sent him a copy of the 70s book, and I asked him to write the foreword to the Packers book, and uh, he did. And uh, I, I think if I had not had started out by actually writing a book about the 70s, I don't know that he would have. But, you know, so it was the 70s book was like uh, the um, the turnstile that got me into the stadium. And now I'm in there. The, the, the Packers book. To, for me, it's my favorite book out of the three because I'm so close to the subject. I don't know mm-hmm. of anybody – I don't know of any employed American to this day who hasn't at least at one time had a bad boss. I don't know of any. Mm-hmm. And and I'm yep. right there with him. And and I just saw so many similarities between Dan Devine and bad bosses. <laughs> I did I would it's interesting it's interesting to me because this this was the type of book and I, I read a lot of football books, so on and so forth. And I do a, a lot of reviews of books. And there's a lot of books I get. I don't review them because I don't think they're worthy of reviewing. But your uh-huh. book on the Packers, and I, and I, you know, I don't deny I'm a big Packers fan. I mean, I basically <laughs> sat down one night and, you know, now it's 1030 at night. Brenda's saying, yeah, we're going to shut the light off and go to bed. And I said, well, i got to finish this book because, I mean, this is amazing. This is everything I ever thought, how bad the Packers were coached by Devine. I'm finally seeing the real evidence of telling me Devine was a horrible coach for the Packers. Why did they ever yeah. pick him as beyond me? And now there's a I real was, story. I, and I, I, they I, I, did. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was right there with you because every time I would talk to a different player and they would tell me more stories, I was like, oh, my God. I mean, and yeah. then, and then pe- people were – um, Facebooking with me who had connections to other coaches and things like that and the stories they told me. And I'm thinking, holy cow, he's not just a bad yep. coach, but he's yep. dishonest. <laughs> you know? yep. so, 
Oh yeah. my God! So a, anyway, you know, it, what it was, scared it, it me was, was a, that I got a um, go ahead. I got a uh, I got a message online message from one of Divine's uh, relatives, and then I started having Rudy flashbacks, and I'm thinking, oh no! <laughs> and so he, he he basically said, I can't ra- wait to read your book, and so I sent him um, my. Um, telephone number i said please call me before you buy a copy because i kind of wanted to soften the blow as much as i could to him but he never called me and to this day i don't know what happened uh if he mm-hmm. if he liked it if he hated it whatever but i i never well, they're, they're, you know they're, they're basically protecting you know the family member and i can understand that but you know <clears throat> there's a real story there about his ineptness to me there, and also in, in, in Notre Dame at the same time. You know, it's just, it's it's nuts. Well, it's, it's crazy. Like like Chuck Lane said, if you're going to be able to, you know, bench Joe Montana, then that kind of tells you how you how great of a player evaluator you are. And, yeah. you know, and that's what DeVine did. I mean, uh, Joe Montana, what did he, um, three Super Bowl MVPs, four Super Bowl championships, zero Super Bowl losses. Yeah, I yep. think Montana's pretty pretty good quarterback. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, your your follow up book to that, Joe, was uh, was a book on Willie Lanier. I mean, obviously Hall of Fame, amazing, you know, middle linebacker. But that's a pretty specific topic, you know, for a kid from Pennsylvania. How did you decide to write a book on him? Okay, here goes the story. Um, <laughs> I was driving up north to go to the Hall of Fame to do research on the 72 Packers book when a friend of mine uh, who works at NFL Films, Chris Willis, emailed me, and he asked me to email his publisher um, because she was looking for, uh, you know, another another topic. And so um, I, I did, and she told me what she was looking for. She was took it, looking for a, a, a football story uh, that had a social bent to it. Uh, and of course, Willie Lanier was the first African American middle linebacker in pro football history. So I threw that idea at her, and she asked me to write up some stuff. Um, you know, see what the editorial board of uh, the, the publisher was Roman and Littlefield, what they thought about it, and they liked it a lot. But I made the mistake of not asking Willie Lanier first whether he'd be willing to uh, participate. I learned a valuable but- lesson. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Willie said no. Willie said no. So okay, I I like baseball. I asked him a second time. He said no. I asked him a third time. Lo and behold, and he started getting a little little miffed. <laughs> and I figured, you know what? Willie's no means no, and I don't want Willie to rupture my spleen. Um, so <laughs> I basically, you know, I I I gave up after the third attempt. And but fortunately for me, I had you know my friend Chris Willis, who had plenty of uh, NFL Films interview uh, transcripts. Uh, I also have a friend John Kendall at the Hall of Fame, and spent a whole day up there, just basically uh, scouring all the microfilm and microfiche that I could on articles that were written about Rip Willie. Turns out I had plenty of football information on Willie, and a lot of quotes. Um, but you know, I, I was able to interview some of his uh, teammates, uh, Raymond Chester, Mark Washington, both went to college with him at Morgan State. But what I really wanted to interview Willie about was esoteric things like, you know, you were, you were in college when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. How did you feel about that? What, what, are, what were you thinking at that time? Did your coach cancel practice? What, what all happened during that? Things like that that would get you to understand, you know, his his mindset at that time as a very young man. And then I wanted to ask him more about his business enterprises after he retired from football. And unfortunately, I never came, I never could. And the book was my toughest book to write uh, altogether, I think. And it's it's not as good as it could have been had Willie participated in it. Is he just a shy person or why did he say no? You know, I I kind of think 
that he wanted to write his own memoirs. And then he's also very good friends with uh, a friend of mine, Michael McCambridge, who, you know, grew up a Kansas City Chiefs fan. And I think Willie probably thought that Michael was going to write a book on him. And and Michael still may at sometime in the future. I don't know. But um, I uh, I had already gotten the go-ahead and the contract from the publisher. So I had to go with what I had. And, you know, unfortunately, Willie didn't participate in it. But like I said, I had a lot of transcripts from NFL films to draw on, and that was very helpful. Well, uh, that's a, that's very interesting. Was, I, I, yeah. Go ahead, Jeff. No, no, I was just it was kind of mumbling. It's just I've always thought I'm 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 a different style writer than like Bob or you know any of the other people who contribute to Gridiron Greats. I take a more analytical approach. I tend to write about stuff that I know about. And I, I don't right. think I've ever heard about someone who had, you know, a publisher approach them and just say, you know, we, we're after something with a social topic. And obviously, you know, yeah, I mean, so a very interesting story. That was, that was cool. It, it, it was, it was kind of, you know, it was kind of weird because like I was in Ohio at the time and I was in a truck stop and I don't even have a truck. It was one of those, you know, um, you know, in interstate places where you pull over and rest over and there's always somebody knocking on your window asking you for $5 to help fix his radiator or something like that. But um, anyway, I'm, I'm there and I'm reading these emails and it's like, I, the first name I thought of was Willie Lanier, the first African-American middle linebacker in pro football history. And no one to my knowledge has written a book on him before me. I, I didn't think that anyone did. You know, so that's that's the one key thing. If 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 you're going to try and write a book, do your best to write about something that no one else has written. Uh, and that's not easy because sometimes you can get three and four chapters done, and then all of a sudden somebody beats you to the punch. And that's happened to me wow. before too. And yeah, that's happened. Exactly. To me, you know. But it, it actually happened to me twice already. So you you really have to. Try and find somebody that you know. If it's, if you're going to write a biography, um, you're probably not. I, I don't think I have a good chance of get, writing a biography of Tom Brady. My odds are very slim. <laughs> or Bill Parcells. I mean, uh, not Bill Parcells. Uh, Belichick. Bill Belichick. Nobody oh, will no, be writing no. about but, him. That's but a, you know, here's a here's a Belichick uh, story. Ahead. I got a Belichick story for you. I'll hurry up because I know you guys are running short. Um, I sent a copy of my 70s book to Belichick because I knew he was a football historian, and he he sent me back a letter thanking thanking me so much for sending it to to him. And he said that um, he would read it uh, um, when he gets a chance. But I forget what word he he misspelled one of the words in his letter. So um, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, we are, we are getting a little short. Getting a little short on time. We've got a few more questions. Joe, any interesting story besides what you shared so far in writing these three books? Anything that really stands out completely more than any, anything else I've even looked at? Stands out to to me the most was how many people were how many people really enjoyed the '70s book. I couldn't believe when 1,600 people bought it. Um, I, I thought that was that just flabbergasted me. So I. I I kind of knew that there's an audience out there for football history. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Most, you're, talking, most, uh, you're talking to two of them right now. <laughs> yeah. Most definitely. I agree with that 100%. Mm-hmm. That's what stands I'm, out. I'm most. curious, Joe. This show is uh, obviously, you know, Gridiron Greats. You know, you've read Bob's, you know, publication, Gridiron Greats. But mm-hmm. most of this stems from, you know, collecting, uh, you know, uh, I'm a football card collector. So is Bob. We were talking about unopened wax prior and sheets and stuff. Do you collect? Uh, I mean, you know, kids growing up in the '70s. I mean, you know, a lot of collectors. Do you, do you collect football cards or memorabilia or anything? I I don't collect cards. Lately, though, I've been trying to collect football helmets from the '70s. Um, and you know, oh wow. The the problem with that is that it's darn near impossible to say that this was used in a game. Darn near impossible. Uh, there, there are certain 
things that you can look into for provenance and stuff, but I'm, I'm a neophyte when it comes to it. Um, but, um, you know, if it looks kind of dirty, they'll, they'll, people will say, yeah, it was used in the Immaculate Reception game. And no, it's not. It's a Chargers helmet, buddy. You know, so, yeah, yeah, you, know, well. uh, you, you guys know frauds when you see them. But, but anyway, they look nice. So that's that's what I've been trying to, to, you know, I don't have a lot of them, but I have a few. And I like to try and see if I can capture division by division. I, I have uh, all the ones from the old AFC West. Um, don't have a Seattle yet, but Seattle didn't come out in oh. 76. So it's, it's not a complete series. <laughs> all right. We're we're in the we're in the NFC West when we first came out. So I mean, we that that's they right. Got that's right. That's right. Yeah. For one year. Yeah, they, so, for one year. Yep. Joe, we're almost out of time. What a what a great story you have with these three books, and I do appreciate reviewing them. And uh, they're very very enlightening. I I did enjoy them all. I also uh, gotta say I'm I'm really glad. I'll go public saying it for the hundredth time. I'm really glad somebody wrote a book on the '72 Packers and actually looked at Divine and and you know really state. Through real interviews and, and real commentary from the players and the coaches and the people who worked there during that time frame, uh, well, they could have done it. a much I'm, better job with the coach, you know? Well, you know, I, I agree. And, um, in fact, if they would have let Bart Starr continue to call the plays, there was not a player yep. on that team that won't tell you that they would have gone to the Super Bowl. Um, I don't right. know how they would have done with the Dolphins. But uh, I'm going to try to get ESPN to do a 30 for 30 on it. I don't know if I can, you know, get them to do it, but I'm going to try. So. Yeah, that'd be very, very, yeah. very interesting. Or a right, football life, for... I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Joe, thanks for being on. Uh, again, uh, real quick, anybody looking for any of these three books, where should they go to to, to pick them up? Best place, uh, websites, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Booksamillion.com. Those are the three main ones. Okay. If you don't have these books, I highly recommend them to any of our listening audience who uh, is looking for something to do in their downtime. And uh, these are three great books, and I appreciate it. Joe, thanks for being on this evening. We appreciate it. Hey, likewise, Bob and Joe, thanks for having me on. I had I had a blast. Uh, thank thank you. you. Joe Zagorski. Joe, real quick, we're down to less oh. than two minutes. Real quick, wrap up. What'd you pick up on tonight's show? What a passionate collector! I absolutely love that. I'm always jealous of someone. I, 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 I can sit down and write, and I, I owe, I owe you a, a, a gridiron article. Or else I'm going to lose my senior contributing status one of these days, Captain. That's right. But I'm just I'm always impressed with someone who can. <laughs> I'm always impressed with someone who can who's just a good writer like that. So it just it was good to have him on. What a what a what a great guest. Yeah, I I, I truly you know, again, like I said, I get a lot of books in the mail unsolicited to review and I and I do review a lot of them. You know, usually we got one or two reviews in every issue and um but again, these three books that he's written, superior quality, great story, his first book on the some of these, finally a year by year view that's the type type of book I like to read. The Packer book goes without saying, great book. And I did, I did really enjoy reading about Willie Lanier. I learned a lot of stuff that I, I really didn't know about the guy. And uh, I'm just shocked that he wouldn't he wouldn't want to you know contribute to a book like that. Uh, it doesn't yeah. make sense to me. But then again, you know it is what it is. That's it. All right, we're down to about a minute. Uh, hopefully, we're gonna have a couple more shows this month. I'm lining up a few. Uh, individuals to be on Joe any other final thoughts uh, just happy to be back captain happy to hear your uh, your voice dragging out you know his football just happy to be football. back yeah, and, uh, <laughs> one one real quick uh, comment in 10 seconds a couple people have asked me about the national uh, I'm really thinking that it's probably going to be postponed to a different time. I I I I just think it's just not going to happen. I can't see it happening 
anytime soon. Again, I could be completely wrong, but then again, I don't know how many people are going to want to go there. You know what I mean? So uh, we'll see what happens. I know they put on their website that they, they're, they're exploring other dates also, if need be. But I know no decision will be made until July. So it'll be interesting to see. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll, we'll be back in a few week, uh, in a few days and or a week with another episode. Take care. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.